Okay, gentlemen, we've uh, completed the silence and the wonderful fire and the wonderful talks that people gave. And we decided to add this in. Is that about right? Okay. We decided. (laughs) (laughs) We decided to add in (coughs) some sharing from two people who are here. And I don't know how we select them. It seems to just appear or it just happens. And we just asked them to talk for 25 minutes, maybe tell a little bit about their story and then some spiritual feature of AA that they particularly like talking about. And we're very blessed tonight. I think we're in for a real treat. And I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Joe. Thanks, Sandy. Hey, guys. I'm Joe Krogan. I'm an alcoholic. What an honor to be with all of you guys. And it was an honor for Sandy to ask me to do this. And I wanted the honor. I just didn't want to do it. (laughs) Uh, I tried to say no, but uh, uh, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And uh, it really has been an incredible weekend. And I want to thank Sandy and, and Chris and the whole crew for creating a space where we could have this happen and we could uh, have this kind of experience here together. And I've met some great guys and got to spend some time with some men that we've become friends. And, you know, one of the things that I that I saw happen uh, during that quiet time is, um, and it didn't happen until right at the end, we were sitting in the dinner and I looked around the dinner and nobody was talking. You know, we were, it, for, first of all, I noticed there was a peace. I didn't have to be on. No, you know, you just could sit there and enjoy it. There was no pressure to say anything, to strike up a conversation, to, to be anything. And I looked around and, and I could see it in everybody's faces. And then something happened. For me, anyway, I looked and I saw everybody look like kids. Because they weren't talking. They were all kind of like, they were all, the pressure was off, we're eating, we're enjoying it, and, and, and it was a neat experience to kind of see everybody as God's kids for a minute. And, uh, I had that experience happen to me briefly when I was, uh, in a treatment center, but, um, I'm an alcoholic, man. What, what can I say? I love to drink for a lot of years. If you didn't like it, you, you're in the wrong place. Um, I liked it, I, I have a 22 year old son, and I, think he has some of the tendencies, and I said, here's the first sign. Do you like it more than your friends? And that might be an indication. Do you have a better time? And uh, and I did when, when my drinking, and, and I'm just like everybody else. I, I suffered from that little terminal sense of lack, you know. Uh, my story, like Sandy says, my story has changed over the years because my perception of what happened to me has changed over the years. I really used to think that my upbringing wasn't all that great, and when in fact it really wasn't bad at all. I mean, I had a, uh, a my mother was a tremendously dedicated woman and and worked hard and and worked a job and raised kids and sacrificed a lot for us. But I had that condition that absolutely uh, forbid me to appreciate it, and I don't know why, but I couldn't appreciate it. 
And uh, you know that feeling when you're growing up, that feeling you don't fit in, you don't belong, even in your own family. It was kind of like when I was a kid, I used to wet the bed. And uh, it's kind of like wetting the bed. I remember one time it got to be problematic, and my mother said, I'm going to go to school and tell the kids in school that you wet the bed. And uh, you, you, you don't want to wet the bed. You just do. And uh, and it's you know there's something wrong with you, and you don't know what it is, but you can't go to school and go, you know, Richie, I'm having trouble wetting a bed. What do you do about that? You know, just inwardly, it, and all of a sudden, everything goes in after that, and it's, and and the the drama, the acting, you know, came on. But for me, alcohol, like we hear so many people describe, for me, the best thing, it was a spiritual experience. That was my first spiritual awakening. Uh, I remember hearing the promises at a meeting, going, "Hey, that's what happened to me when I drank." You'll have a new attitude, an outlook on life, you, a new freedom and a new happiness. You will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave you. You will intuitively know how to handle situations used to baffle you. You will suddenly realize that you can do for yourself what you couldn't do before. And that's exactly what happened to me when I drank. And, and I've said that to people before. I said, if, if alcohol did for you what it did for me, you'd have drank too. And uh, and I pursued it with a vigor. Um, from the very first time I did it, I think I was under the influence, and I loved it. They talk about in the book. It says um, it says that we lack the kind of defense that keeps us from putting our hand on a hot stove. And it wasn't that you know that that's kind of misleading because there should be another part to it. It what for me anyway. It wasn't that I I would put my hand. I didn't know the stove was going to be hot again. I could tell myself, it's not going to burn me this time. It's not hot. Let me just check it out. And that's it. We reach out and want to do it again. And I did it over and over again. Now, I do represent the dummies in this room. I know that none of you guys are dummies. But uh, I represent the dummies in Alcoholics Anonymous because when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, my sobriety date and... Uh, is September 12th, 1990. I don't remember a lot about that day. I remember a heck of a lot about September 11th, 1990. On September 11th, I found myself in a Skid Row motel room with my two-year-old son and his mother. And uh, it was absolutely the worst day of my life. It was a day that, you know when you wake up, after a binge, some of you could probably relate to this experience. You know, after you've gone out on a binge and, and you wake up and you can mount that defense, you know, you get the defense going, you go, oh, God, I'm not going to do that again. That's it. I'm done. I'm straightening my life out. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to put some food. I'm going to pay the bills. I'm going to be a dad and go down the list of things that I've given up years and years ago. And, and, I, and I, that day, something happened. I could not mount a defense. I could not buy into my own lies one more day. And I got up there and I looked in that mirror and I said, uh, so this is how it ends. So you're going to die an alcoholic in the gutter. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize later on, I, I don't know what your story is. I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never been to Alcoholics Anonymous on September 12th, 1990, was five days before my 40th birthday. I never knew anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd never been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. That's a dummy. 
I mean, I took this thing to the bitter end and, uh, and kept putting my hand back on that hot stove over and over and over till I absolutely gave up everything in life, every principle, every moral, every relationship I ever had. Um, but on that day, you know, in, in, the, in the book it talks about Bill when he hit bottom. See, I didn't come here going, all right, that's it, today's the last day, I'm going to go straighten my life out, I'm going to go to that AA thing. I didn't, that is not my story. What I surrendered to was to die. On September 11th, 1990, I said, I can't, I said, I can't get up anymore and tell myself this lie that I'm going to quit. I'm not going to quit. On September 11th, 1990, I made a decision that I am going to drink till I die. And I will go to any length to do it. Because quitting was killing me. I had an epiphany. I realized my problem was not alcohol and drugs. My problem was lack of. Sobering up was my problem. And I couldn't take it one more time. I could not sober up and face the terror, the suffering and the humiliation one more time and take a look at my life and what I'd created in 40 years. And that's what Joe did. And that's what alcohol did, did to me. And that's where, what I did in my life. You know, I've heard so many great things this weekend. And, and um, But I love we talked a little bit about how the hand of God seemed to orchestrate an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't, I couldn't see, see, that's, that's the greatest gift I got out of Alcoholics Anonymous and out of good sponsorship and out of the men that went before me and out of listening to guys like Sandy and Jack and, and a lot of you guys. And I've heard your stories. I've, I've talked to a lot of you guys this weekend and I've heard your stories. I know the miracles that are in the room. The guy sitting next to you, your story is just as impactful. The miracle really happened. When we heard that song, Amazing Grace, that was your song, right? It was personal to every single one of us. It's it's no less of a miracle in anybody's life. Um, and that's really... But I couldn't see that. See, I had that terminal sense of lack. I was absolutely incapable of feeling any gratitude. But when I came here, and, and it's only through the AA rearview mirror, when I look back, and after, through sponsorship, I got to be able to look back. But when I look back, I can say, wow. You know that day in the Mayflower Hotel when Bill was pacing in the lobby? Come on, think about it. If you were in that position and you wanted a drink, would you make the phone call? (laughs) Our lives hung in the balance. And he's thinking about drinking. I remember when you told me that when I got here. You know, call me before you drink. Why would I call you? If I want a drink, you're going to try and talk me out of it. (laughs) I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. By the way, don't tell newcomers that. Uh, And it really was. What happened, though, on September 11th, 1990, is I made that decision, to, and I surrendered to die. And I said, I'm, go- I'm going to quit quitting. That's what I did. I said, I'm going to quit quitting, because it's trying to quit and falling down again, touching it. It's killing me. So I surrendered. And I didn't know when it was going to happen. And Bill says it in, in his story on page 8. He says, so I was to join the endless procession of sots that went on before me. Alcohol was my master. I had met my match. I know that feeling. And uh, that's what happened to me. I did not. Now, that was the last day I had a drink. You go, go figure that. I don't know how that happened, but it did. Uh, a series of events. I'm in a I'm in a motel room, in a Skid Row motel room, and there was a knock on the door that night. And that knock on the door. Now, at this stage of your drinking, guys, you don't open the door. <laughs> you don't answer the telephone. Publisher's Clearinghouse is not out there with a big check. There's no good news on the other end. And uh, at that point, 
But something happened. You know what? I, for the first time in my life, I was free because I'd been honest with me. I surrendered to what I was. I was an alcoholic, and I was going to die of this disease. I had no more fear. I opened the door that night. Everything just fell into sequence. Of course, I didn't have a lot to do with it. And I opened the door, and in walked my brother, who I hadn't seen in a, in a couple years because I owed him money. I like I, My motto in those days used to be, if I know you, I owe you. And... Uh, and, 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 and I was pretty good at getting in your pocket one way or another. Um, scheming to defraud, right? <laughs> Talked to a couple attorneys. That was my charge, by the way. You know, Seemed to fit perfect, right? Seemed to, he said, that describes our life. Scheming to defraud. We've been doing that our whole life. And uh, anyway, I opened the door and my brother came in. And he took a look at the scene, and it was this. It was horrific. My little boy was in filthy diapers, and he had a bottle that was was ba- it used to have milk in it at one time, but it was cloudy. It was water, and it was watered down. And and and, and I was absolutely incapable of being a dad and being responsible in any way. And I wanted to, and I loved that little boy. I was at his birth. I cried. I held him. Made all the promises. I said, "I'm going to be the greatest father in the world." And I walked out of that room, you know, out of the maternity ward, and my buddies were in the waiting room, and they said, let's go have a drink, celebrate the birth of your child, and I didn't come back home for eight days. Don't even know how they got home. See, because when I drink, that's what I do, I drink. I don't do anything else. You guys are the greatest thing that's happened in my life, and men like this, and today I want to be as close to you. Now, it wasn't always like this. I did not, let me tell you, I did not do this thing uh, if I look back over the 20 years I've been sober, what I see is two lines. It's my heels being drug in the sand. Uh, I get out of this. I, I went to the only place. He said, he, my brother walked in. He says, you know what? You need help. Now, I didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous, so I didn't know you were there. I wouldn't have known where to find you. But I did know about treatment, and I went to a treatment center, end up in a treatment center for indigents, because that's what I was in Miami, and uh, I go there, and, I, and it was a six-month treatment center, and I thought I was brighter than all the rest of the guys. I said, I heard treatment's 28 days. You can't fool me. And they said, no, that's for people with money and insurance. You're going to become a ward of the state. You're going to be in here for six months. And I stayed in that place for six The guy brought a meeting in, and this is what you do. And this is what I do today. Uh, he brought a meeting into that treatment center. That night, he was 28 years old. He had clean clothes. He had creased pants. He had a nice car, full pack of cigarettes, and he had a watch. I said, man, if I get my hands on that watch, I would be gone. Um, but he said a couple things that night, and uh, he said the thing we always hear in meetings. He said, you never have to take another drink or drug if you don't want to after tonight. That didn't mean a lot to me because you know why? I tried to stop before. I knew that wasn't going to work. I knew when you swing those doors open, sooner or later I'm going to screw up. I've always screwed up. That's what I've done my whole life. But he said something else. It was my 40th birthday, and I'm sitting in a treatment center for indigents. And he said, you never have to feel the way you feel tonight again. I said, that's what I want. More than anything in the world, that's what I want. I want to feel like the way we feel this weekend. And uh, he said something else. There were 50 of us in that room. He said, you know, if you stay to the end of this, and I don't know why, but he said, if you stay to the end, your life will never be the same. And I hung on to that, and 
He said, but by the way, there won't be five of you left at the end of the six months. And he was right. There were two of us. And I got out of that treatment center. And then this is what God, this is where the hand of God stepped in. I, I get out of that treatment center. I would go where every good alcoholic, 40-year-old alcoholic goes when he's got nowhere to go. Mom, I'm home. <laughs> My my mom lived in a little trailer not far from here, probably a hundred miles away in a, in a mobile home park in central Florida. It was the elephant burial ground. You gotta be a thousand years old to live in that county. And, uh, and I used to own a bar on South Beach, you know, and now I'm in, I'm vanquished to like Lady Lake, Florida. And, and, but listen to how, listen what happened the moment I stopped running my life. And that's what this whole thing has been about. I'm sitting there the first night I'm there, and and the guy next door is watering his lawn. And he says, hey, my name's Frank, man. I hear you had a problem with alcohol. I said, yeah. He said, you want to go to an AA meeting? Sure. I said, mom's been talking. (laughs) And uh, so he said, I'll pick you up quarter after seven, uh, be outside. I'll pick you up outside. Quarter after seven, little old man, you know. Drove a little old car, lived in a mobile home next door. Quarter after seven, I looked outside. Now, here's something we don't talk about a lot, but this is what Alcoholics Anonymous truly is. Uh, at quarter after seven, I looked outside. He never beat the horn. He was sitting out there idling, and I go outside, and I jump in the car. Off we go to the meeting. I smoked his cigarettes, burned up his gas. I never offered him a dime. And, uh, you know, and, and we go to the meeting. He drops me off. Now, the next night, I'm having dinner at home, and I'm eating dinner, and I look and I look over my mother's shoulder, and there's that little guy outside. He's, a, he's sitting outside, and the car's idling. And he never beeped the horn. He just sat there waiting. And I said, I'll outweigh that guy. I missed the part about us going steady. I can outweigh this old guy, and I could probably take him. I don't know. but And uh, by the way, my wife reminds me that he's my age now. So, But you know what that's called? That's called unconditional love. Every single one of us in this room is here through the kindness of strangers. And that's what happened. That man took me to a meeting, and he took me to a meeting every night for six months. He took me through the steps. He talked to me. He set me free. I heard those words said here. Jack said that today. He set me free. And I didn't know what he was doing. He started taking me through the steps. He says, I'm going to make them real simple. You're not a bright guy. So I'm going to tell you the first three steps in a language you can understand. Step one, you're screwed. That's it. That's all there is to it. Step two, it's going to take a miracle. (laughs) And step three is what the hell, try it. (laughs) And I could relate to that. (laughs) And and he took me through those steps, but you know, and... and (laughs) And I could grasp that with Frank. And we started, and, and incredible things started happening in my life. Things that we just, when you, you can't see them when you're in them, but when you look back, and they're happening in everybody's life here. When I sponsor guys today, the first thing I tell them is stop buying lotto tickets. You just won. If you're sitting in my house, in my office with me, and we're getting ready to go through the steps, you just won the lotto. You don't get to take the lump sum because we don't get paid in advance anymore. You get the installment plan here, but you won, and your life's never going to be the same. Frank set me free in so many ways, and I didn't know that I was in bondage in so many ways. And we talked about him today, in bondage to me. And uh, 
I remember when we were going through that second step. I love that part that we talked about this week, and it's probably my favorite line in the whole book. Um, God either is or he isn't. He's either everything or he's nothing. What's your choice to be? And I remember, what's your cho- you mean I do have a choice? The problem is, is now listen, once you make the choice, then you've got to go back and read the first part of that again. See, because it means something different once you made the choice. Because you don't hear the first part. He's everything. That's it. He's either everything or he's nothing. He either is or he isn't. What's your choice to be? See, I lived my life like God wasn't looking for 40 years. It's not that I didn't believe in God. I just didn't think he was looking. And if he was, I kind of thought of God as a, as a guy I owed a lot of money to. I just hope I don't run into him. You know? <laughs> And that's the way I thought about God. So today, and Frank, we started going through those steps, and I remember this was a neat part of step two. And this is when I knew you guys had something special going on here. I um, I went to work at a car dealership. I used to sell cars back in those days. Through the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not found it necessary to sell a car today. I, I am recovering car salesman, too, but... But I, I went to work and selling cars, and I remember my manager was a guy that I used to know back in West Palm, and we drink together. So I did the thing that a lot of newcomers do. I went out with him a couple nights just to listen to the music. You know, I want to get close to the edge. I don't want to fall in. I just want to get close. Frank told me it wasn't a good idea. So I come to work, and we go out one night, and we're in Orlando, 50 miles away, and He's drunk as can be, and I'm starting to get panicky. I know the ice is getting thin. And I don't know. I, I imagine this is what happened to Bill in that hotel lobby. I knew I was scared. I said, i got to get out of here. Now, he's drunk, and he's not going to take me home. He's obnoxious. He's belligerent. We almost got in a fight. This is my boss. And I need this money. You don't understand. i got felonies. i got child support. I need this job. Uh I'm living with mom, for God's sake. And uh, I call the taxi and take a taxi all the way back home, 50 miles away. And when I got home the next day, I go show up for work. And now, you know how we're a little bit embarrassed after we've acted out. And, well, that's how he was that night. And I get a call to the office. Joe Krogan, come to the office. So I go to the office, and I'm sitting there. He goes, have a seat. He said, let me ask you a question. You go to those AA meetings, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, tell me the truth. Do you talk about me there? <laughs> now, I didn't then. I do now. <laughs> right? And uh, so I walk out of the room. I go, oh, God, I'm screwed. I need this. This is a perfect. This is what we've been talking about this entire weekend. I go back and I've got the, I'm out of ideas. Believe me. I used to sit in meetings and go, these old guys are lucky. I'm desperate or I wouldn't be here. I didn't know what AA was. I, I don't even know, didn't know anything. I am oblivious. I'm Mr. Magoo. So I go back and I call Frank. It's the only thing I know to do. Frank, I'm screwed, man. I'm not long for this job. What am I? I tell him what happened. He said, this is an incredible opportunity. Your whole life, you've been believing in the problem. We're going to try and believe in the solution. This was right after he told me, what's your choice? I said, so what's your choice? He says, here's what I want you to do. Most sage words I've ever, my sponsees echo these words back to me. They already know when they call me. This is what they're going to get. Frank said, I want you to pray about it and then call me back tomorrow. Let me know how God works it out. That was it. I said, that's your best. That's the best you got. 
But luckily I was desperate and I did what I was told. See, some days we get to feel the faith, other days we just get to practice it. And I still am like that. I don't know about anybody else, but that's how I am. So the next day I show up for work. And I go into work and uh, Tony, my boss, is nowhere to be found. Come to find out he got shot eight times the night before trying to buy crack cocaine. Now, it was a small caliber gun. Bobby wasn't hurt bad. He was released from the hospital the same day, but he was shot eight times. We never saw him again. The car, they towed the car in, all shot up. And I, of course, I called Frank. I said, Frank, you won't believe it. God shot the guy eight times. (laughs) And uh, that, but, but you see, Frank had a chance to set me free from me. When we, were, when we were getting into the steps and we'd talk about God, and he'd say, listen, you don't have to believe in God, but you do have to start living like you believe in God. He said, then let's see what happens. And I've been doing that little by little. I didn't do it for a long time, and I'm going to fast forward. At six years sober, I didn't want... I, I had taken the reins back. I started unworking these steps. I stopped going to meetings. I got the biggest job I'd ever had. I bought a big house. I got married to the most beautiful woman. Some of you know my, some of you know my second wife. She's also my third wife. There's a lot in that statement. Think about it. Okay? At that time, she was my second wife. But she divorced me. I'm working 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and she divorced me. I'm, look what I've done for you. And I've got no program. Here's the program I'm working. I want to go to a meeting. i got to look in a where and when. My sponsor calls me. He's living up in Leesburg, and I'm back in West Palm. And I'm telling my secretary, tell him I'm not here. That's a real good program. <laughs> you start working that one, you're in trouble. And what happened was my wife divorced me shortly afterwards. I was in such rage, they fired me from this job. I lost the best job I ever had. Went from being a hero to a zero overnight. And I'm, I got my little boy in tow now, and he's about six years old. And, uh, and I'm back down to rock bottom. I'm applying for credit cards to pay off credit cards, scheming to defraud. It's back in the same MO, right? And uh, I wanted to drink more than I wanted to stay sober. And I cursed God. And I remember one night I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, and I started going by this bar. Every night I would drive by this bar, and it was real attractive. It had a name. It was really attractive to me. It said Bar. <laughs> and the parking lot was in the back. It's one of those ones you could go in at 8 o'clock in the morning, come out at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's one of those ones where you can go and be a big shot for a short time until they discover you're, they got to throw you out of there too. So I'm driving by this place, but it's hard to drink when you got five and a half years sober. Every time I got near it, I get these butterflies in my stomach. See, because when I drink, my lifestyle changes. I'm not, there's no pretense. There's no illusion that I'm going to be drinking out of stemmed glassware at the piano bar. I know what's going to happen to me. And on the seventh day, I finally get mad and my little boy's asleep and I drive to that bar and, uh, and I'm at a traffic light. True story. I'm at a traffic light. A block away from the bar, I can see it. And I got the butterflies, and I look over, and there's a broken-down van. And the hood's up on the van. It's nighttime. And I could just read the license plate of that van. And it said, have you prayed today? And I could hear Frank's voice, what the hell, try it. And I said the serenity prayer that night. And I had a sober blackout. 
I don't know how I got to where I got, but I went to a meeting of Alcoholics. I ended up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous instead of that bar. And it was a meeting I'd been to one time a year earlier, and it was on the other side of town. And I walked in the back of the room, and it was just like this. There were about 150 people there. The guy was at the podium. And he says, tonight's our anniversary night. We're all celebrating anniversaries. Um, is there anyone else here celebrating an anniversary tonight in the month of September? And I raised my hand like an idiot. And everybody clapped. And he said, that's great. We've got about six celebrants, but since they all come up and share for about five minutes on how they stayed sober, he said, since you're our visitor, why don't you start us off? (laughs) True story. So I come walking up from the back. Now I'm a car salesman. I figure I can wing this one, right? And uh, I get up to the front of the room, and I turned around, and I looked at your faces. And... uh, I couldn't lie anymore. I started to cry. I started to weep, actually. And I mean, just absolutely, I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm lost, and I need help. And the kindness of strangers, one more time. And these guys, and I couldn't speak anymore, and these guys came and rushed me off stage because the treatment center had all these newcomers in the front row, and they're going, that's not how you are at six years. (laughs) He's just humble. And they ushered me off that stage, and then they came to me, and they said, we're going to show you one more time. I didn't know these guys. They came, picked me up at 8 o'clock in the morning. They stuck with me until 1130 that night the next day. I think we hit three meetings. They said, we're going to get you back, and we're going to show you what we did. We're going to show you what we do. They get, got me going to prisons and detoxes and treatment centers. They took One of the guys took me back through the steps again. I started taking guys through the steps. My life changed. The magic of one alcoholic another is incredible, has saved my life. And I still, to this day, those are my obligations. I ask anybody, I sp- those are the, the things I do. Because all this is, is really wonderful, but my recovery is in my home. My wife's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We've got a sober family. My kids, my kids have been to AA. They grew up in AA. And I got, I'm, God has blessed the worst parent in the world with another set of, i got a set of twin boys that are 12 years old now. And my, 20, my other son has just got out of the Coast Guard. He's 22 years old. And uh, he just got out, so he's going to go back to college. And um, my life is absolutely incredible. My recovery is what I do for a living. My job is what I do to support my livelihood. There's nothing more important in my life. Uh, I absolutely love being around you guys, and I love being around Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, whatever happens is great. And, and I'm such a privilege to be with you guys, and thank you for the honor of, of sharing, Sandy, and, and being here this weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. We all just adored that. Our next uh, speaker is somebody you see all the time, but you've never heard him talk to you. You see him every year, and I thought I'd ask Guy to come up and uh, wrap it up this evening. Come on up, Guy. Thanks, Sandy. I'll take it from here. Uh, you know, I've just noticed everybody's smiling. I mean, I, I, maybe I haven't been looking before, but I have never seen such legitimate 
smiles in my life or everybody's like they know that they're with the you know the this the best teacher and they're here with the best seekers in the right place at the right time and the, and the new people I, I really welcome you and you have hit the jackpot and the people that keep coming back we know why we keep coming back and and you can thank us for putting this on but uh you know Chris and I are doing it for us right so we can get Sandy to sit down and talk for three days and to be with all of y'all it, it's just really special so uh Thanks again for doing that. Um, tonight, I, I just wanted to talk about keep plugging. And that's what my dad used to always said, say to me, um, you know, whenever, Dad, I just can't do it. I'll just keep plugging. You know? well, dad, this is too hard. Keep plugging. And um, later on, uh, I heard him say about Uncle Skeet. Now, Uncle Skeet had, he, he always wore a three-piece suit and the sleeves were too short and the pants were too short and Uncle Skeet was a little bit off and uh, I remember him saying well you know Uncle Skeet he's a plugger so when he kept telling me to keep plugging I thought oh my god am I a plugger like Uncle Skeet <laughs> and uh, I had uh, I had enjoyed my 10th grade uh, at uh, Plant High School in Tampa so much that I found myself in military school in Chattanooga Tennessee I'm always telling Louie about that and the Macaulay School, and we wore navy blue outfits, and I mean, it was no fun at all. And we didn't ever get to see girls, in the, and uh, we, uh, if we wanted to go into town, we had to stick our thumb out and get out on the main broad, I think it was, and to go into downtown. And we'd be in navy blue with a gold braid and white cap cover, and the rednecks would drive by and say, Bell Hop! <laughs> And they'd call us bellhops and made fun of us and everything like that. But it was just like, for a cool guy like me, <laughs> it was the worst experience I've ever had. And I remember calling my dad and saying, hey, Dad, I, I just can't take this anymore. Hey, guy, just keep plugging. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing it, you know. And um, so I'll rush forward here since I, my my story can be really long of it. Rush forward to uh, September 19th, 1983, and I'm launching my spiritual trip there, my spiritual journey with a big dose of reluctant compliance. And I've been in the same treatment center three times, and they've told me not to come back, which was the best thing they ever told me. And uh, back then, they didn't tell you to go to AA. They wanted you to go to aftercare, which practically killed me. Okay, it wasn't, you know, and, but... They told me, you know, you need to change your friends. Well, I wasn't going to change my friends. I had great friends, so I'd, I'd taken them all to treatment. I'd gotten them. I'd, you know, I'd confronted them. I'd intervened on them. I'd, I'd kidnapped them. I'd put hoods over their heads. I'd taken them to the, the treatment centers. And by then, they were saying go to AA. And they're, all my friends were going to AA. I wasn't, and they were getting ahead of me. And that was the only reason that I had gone to AA that night because I didn't want my friends to get ahead of me. And uh, because they were sitting around reading the big book, they were going to Yana, You Are Not Alone in Tampa. And for a real wild Saturday night, they were reading, reading How Bill Sees It. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, they have just sunk to the bottom of the, of the barrel. And uh, But that was the only reason I was there. The other reason is I had been carted over there by another graduate of that treatment center, Menard Hayes. And Menard had come up to my apartment and, and had confronted me because he said, no, I heard they, they you can't go back there, so you're going to have to go to AA with the rest of us. 
And I went, Menard, you just don't understand. You know, you've got a, you've got a job, you've got a, a, a wife, and you've got a daughter, you've got this beautiful wife. And he goes, guy, last week my wife ran off with another man and took my daughter. And I was just, well, 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 I had, no, I had, there's nothing else I could say. I had to go to the freaking meeting. <laughs> so there I am over the Riverside meeting that's not anywhere near a river. It's like good alcoholics. And it's loaded with uh, people from MacDill Air Force Base. And I mean, that was back when everybody smoked and the whole room was Air Force blue with smoke. And I walked into that and I just knew that I had hit the absolute bottom. I had on a three-piece suit with a, an overcoat draped across my shoulders. I look, sort of looked like an Anglo-Saxon superfly. <laughs> because I was cool, you know what I mean? And cool was killing me. And uh, that was the way I went to my first meeting. I'm sure they really got a kick out of that. And uh, I went to meetings there for three years, every Wednesday night. And that was the extent of my program. I went to one meeting. I had no sponsor. I had no sponsees. I didn't know that there was a fellowship and a program. I had, I never heard of a spiritual awakening. And that's all I did. And, uh, but I guess you could say I had a bottom because I had turned my drinking over. But that was all I had turned over and I didn't know it was a will in your life thing. And, um, but I kept plugging. I was going every Wednesday night. And uh, what what really happened to me uh, was another bottom, my second bottom. And you know, we always talk about finances and romances. It was my brother and I were at war, and we we were partners in a business that my grandfather had started. And this, we were going to tear this business asunder because you can't have two CEOs. And uh, we were really going at it, and uh, we were we had been going at it for a while, and. Uh, Somebody had given me a copy of of Emmett Fox, and um, I was reading through it, and it didn't make much sense to me. But one part really did, and I said, uh, I, I'll paraphrase, uh, that humility was when you're willing to let God's will come about in his way, in his place, in his time, and it was going to be perfectly okay with you, sort of similar to this, and you know that that was what you wanted to accomplish. And for some reason, that really that really hit me. And and but I didn't. Nothing happened or anything. So I'm driving down Bayshore Boulevard in Tampa, and I'm in such pain I can hardly stand it. And all of a sudden, I burst into tears, and I realized that God loved me, and had a plan for me, and it was better than anything I could plan for myself. Anything I could plan for myself. And that was my burning bush, spiritual awakening. And after that, I just wanted, I was just a seeker. And I realized that, you know, at step one, I was powerless and everything. And I identified the problem. And it was me and my self-centeredness and the fact that I was powerless. And, you know, I had no control. I identified the solution. And I, God wanted me to have a relationship with him at step two. And it, and it was through AA. That's my way, that was my way to him. And step three, all I had to do was make a decision. You know, like, what's it going to be? Your plan or his plan? So I made that decision. 
And then I became the biggest seeker you've ever seen. And I executed that decision four through nine. And at, you know, at the end of the nine, that, that spiritual awakening that happened on, on Bayshore Boulevard was, was coming on really strong. And that's when I became a seeker. And, um, followed 10, 11, and 12, um, to, you know, to stay awake because I had become awakened and I wanted to stay awake. And I don't know about y'all, but for every awakening, there's a subtle asleepening. <laughs> you know, you, you and that, that's why we got to keep plugging because we've got to do these action steps. Uh, because that, that asleepening kind of just slowly, incrementally, you know, next thing you know, it's, you know, hey, yeah, God, and, and your, your, your prayer in the morning becomes a deep knee bend before you go out the door instead of that, that wonderful communion that you used to have with God. You said, okay, God, you got it, baby. You know, everything's fine and I'm going to let things just be like they are. And, uh, and so, um, that's why I think it's so important, you know, just to keep plugging. Um, and everybody knows what those action steps are. I mean, they're they're different for different people. I mean, some people do, you know, one kind of service or not. Some people go to the jail. Some people make coffee. And I made coffee at Riverside for seven years. They had to pry my cold, dead fingers from that coffee pot <laughs> because I, I just knew that was what was keeping me sober. That was the plugging that I was doing that was keeping me sober. But I had to give it to Reggie because Reggie just could not stay sober. So I had to turn that coffee pot over to Reggie. And, Re- and Reggie goes to the Monday night meeting uh, all the time now. Um, the other steps, you know, of, of sponsoring and being sponsored. And, um, and like I said, Chris is, is my sponsor. He calls me exactly at the time to ask me something when I really need some help. Um, it's just amazing. When I, when I had... <laughs> A, uh, when I had really worked myself and had gotten uh, in, in 09 after all this financial crisis and everything, and, I, and my sponsor was ill, and I called Chris and I said, "Hey, we're going to flip it over here. You, you, you got to listen to my fifth here. I got some. We got to do a fifth with you, buddy." So um, it's it's just amazing. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't have that if I didn't have an active relationship with somebody, and it's because we we just got to keep plugging. And, and helping these new guys, and, and helping people who are not even in the program. I mean, I feel so sorry for these people that aren't alcoholics. You know, and I, and I, so I, you know, I start talking to them, and then, I, and, and they get really interested, and I go, well, "Do you have a drinking problem?" Oh, no, I said, "Even a little one." <laughs> Haven't you ever messed up or done any, you know, too much manischewitz and beer? What you know, did you do anything? And I, no, I said, God, you're just screwed. You know? I guess you'll have to wait for assholes, Anonymous. Cause you... But um, so, I mean, that's what's really helped me because you know when you're doing the action steps and you don't feel like you you know that there's any emergency coming, there's no real crisis or anything, but you're still doing those action steps. It was my uh, my sponsor Fred who you know pointed out to me if you don't have three scheduled AA meetings a week you're not in the program. He says and if, and if you're having a problem you better be going to five or six but you got to have three that people know you're going to be there. And I go you do. 
because I was kind of doing that catch-as-catch-can thing, which means you end up going to one or two, maybe. And the next thing you know, you're in trouble, and you, but you don't know what to do. And uh, so it's, it's all those that, that keep that asleepening from happening. It's so incremental, and it just slowly creeps up on us. And if we keep plugging and doing these action steps... And I've been doing them ever since then. It was September 19th, 1983. And um, and you can always see me on Monday night. I'm going to be, you know, at Bayshore. Wednesday, I'm going to be at the Riverside Group, which has now moved to the Bay. And uh, and Saturday morning, I'm going to be there at 1030. Um, those are the ones I'm for sure going to be at. And um, I just know that, you know, there's other ones that are going to happen. But those three, I'm going to be there for sure. And I'm going to be talking to the, you know, the ten guys I sponsor, and hopefully they're going to be talking to me. And uh, it's all those action steps. They they work. They they build up, and they give us some. Um, it's like a, like a flu shot, you know. It builds up a little immunity there to that first moment of insanity before the first think. And you know what the thinking is. You know what I mean? It's it's when you have conscious contact with your ego. Okay, and it's self-talk. And the self-talk, uh, the, the two biggest self-defeating emotions, anger and fear. And anger is always has a should in it. Alcoholic thinking plus a should. Egocentric thinking with a should. He shouldn't have said that. She shouldn't have done that. The bank shouldn't have done that. You know, the car dealership should have found that. And that's His Majesty the Baby. Yeah, that's, it's in all of us, especially in me, demanding that everything be the way I want it to be. You know, I'm sitting there having this spiritual moment. I come out and, and Dave uh, writes me a little note that says, they're not going to let us have the fire we want to have. Well, being a spiritual giant, I went, those some bitches, I'm going to give you... <laughs> And I went, wait a minute, there I go. Just let everything be as it is. It's all going to work out. And besides, we got Dave on it. Who would you want on your side other than Black Ops Dave to handle a fire, you know? So uh, it's just amazing how quick that self-talk comes on you. Fear. What you always hear in, in, in your egocentric self-talk is what if? What if blank happened? It would be awful, and awful isn't like inconvenient. Awful is the black hole of of anything. It's your child getting shot up in Iraq, you know. But it's just, you know, we we exaggerate the significance of everything. It's lots of fun when we're in love, but boy, when we're shooting or what ifing, it's very dangerous to us because we exaggerate the significance of everything. So a quick spot inventory when you're disturbed is you can go, okay, what did I just tell myself? And then you'll hear it. He shouldn't have done that. And and if you break it down, you know, it's like my brother, he's an asshole. Okay? And so I he does something, assholey. <laughs> and then I look at it and say, he shouldn't have done that. But I've already said, I mean, I'm already, this is just crazy because I've already said he's an asshole, so how do, he's just doing his job. 
But I'm demanding that he not be who he is. Okay, that's that same thing that got me so disturbed that when I took that first drink, all all that stuff goes away. And that was the way I was born, you know. And and so got to go back back to this. And that what ifing, you know what I mean? You know, what if this economy goes on forever? You know, that's a direct violation of what I said at the third step when I was going to turn my will, my life, and this economy, and this my wife and my job, everything over to God. So it's not trusting God. Just like shooting, shooting is playing God. What ifing is not trusting God. And those are the two things that have got me in trouble my entire life. So I can always monitor and do an, you know, an inventory of, you know, sometimes you'd want to sit down and write a new inventory. If you want to know exactly what it is, just listen to your self-talk and, and write down all your what-ifs and your shoulds, and you got it all. Those are the real things that are upsetting you. That's the real source of your disturbability, the what-ifs and the shoulds. So I um, I keep plugging on that. I, mean, I go, okay, I, I'm really disturbed right now. What? Okay, I can tell it's anger because I'm sitting here gritting my teeth. And um, that's just because, okay, where's the, where's the, oh, there's the should. The wife should have had dinner ready tonight. You know, it's like three nights in a row. I mean, I gotta be at the meeting. I'm gonna be late for the meeting. And I go, no, she shouldn't. I mean, she can't even cook. <laughs> if I want dinner, then I, by God, I can get it and bring it home. Instead of spending my time demanding that somebody who does, who can't cook and who doesn't enjoy cooking and you married her, she couldn't cook. If she's not cooking, she's just doing her job. And uh, it took me a long time to kind of get the hang of that, of, of me not playing God and and starting to trust God. So I just kind of keep plugging on that. And uh, it is so so wonderful to have Sandy continuing to help us grow as he grows, talking about the spiritual awakening, which is the only thing worth doing. Because when we're spiritually awake, life is as it's supposed to be for us. That's God's plan when we're awake. And as we grow in our awakening by keeping plugging, uh, life just gets better and better because we have less things to disturb ourselves with. We do less shooting and what ifing. And um, the awakening... puts us not in conscious contact. I always thought it was conscious contact, and I would see two big balls of entity, you know, here's God and here's me, and I'd be like touching him like that, you know, just touching him like that. And what I've come to realize is that it's a oneness with God, a oneness with God. And not that that I'm God. I mean, he's God, but... Like I'm part of him, you know, and, and you're part of him. And we're like the light. Uh, he's the sun and we're the light, you know. And that light is what gives us the ability to go out and help all these other millions of people. That's that's what it is. That's what gives us ability to do that. So to me, it's the only thing worth doing is to work on that awakening and that understanding and remembering who God made us. He made us that light. And that's our job, to go out and help those millions of people. So that concludes my report. 
And if I could just wrap this up with a, with a, a little prayer. And as God, thank you for this good life and this incredible fellowship. And forgive us when we don't love them enough. Amen. Thank you both so much. I think we were guided into two wonderful choices for 2010. I hope you all realize that when you leave here, you have a tremendous responsibility to be the light back in your group. And just, you have to keep it shining so that people will be attracted to it. And somebody's going to come up to you and say, can you tell me what you're doing? (laughs) What is wrong with you? You're happy all the time. And then that's a seeker. And you don't want to lose that seeker. You just take him under your wing. And if you get him, or him in our case, If you get him moved four or five more steps closer, there isn't anything else you can accomplish in life of that magnitude. You could win a Pulitzer Prize, and it wouldn't come close to that. So what we're hoping here is that you refine your own skills and techniques to keep this light so that people are going, what is that light? Because don't forget, when Abby came to see Bill, it wasn't what Abby said. It was what he looked like. That Bill couldn't, he couldn't shake it. He just kept looking at him, just going, this is impossible that this radiation is coming out of this person. So I hope that you realize that you were probably chosen to come here. It's random. It just happens. And that's the reason. So that you came here and you polished all the glass around the light, like a lighthouse. And it's going to shine bright, so you got to keep those glass clean. And then we'll just see what happens. That's the end of tonight. And uh, get a good night's rest, and we'll wrap it up tomorrow morning. Good night, everybody.